Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth Hakerim. For disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flock shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited, Thus says the Lord of hosts, shall they, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel. As a grape gatherer, put your hand back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Last night I was watching a news broadcast and there was a series of warnings that came on the air. Apparently the tobacco industry has been instructed by the government that they now have to post a series of new warnings on cigarette labels. And some of the graphic images include a man blowing smoke through a cut in his own throat. Images of disfigured babies, images of rotting teeth and mouth lesions. I turned to my wife and I said, do you think that these images will be sufficient to make people stop smoking? And she said, I don't think so. You see, warning labels (laughs) are supposed to do just that. They're supposed to warn. We live in a world and we live in a culture and we live in a society where we, there's constant warnings that are being bombarded. We see warnings on the side effects of medications, warnings about deploying airbags and sticking children in the front seat. We're warned about food, what we should eat, what we can breathe. We're warned about movies. Warnings are meant to provide us with security and protection. And... In this chapter, there are a series of warnings. For those of you who are diligent Bible students, you might want to take a little check mark. I'm going to give you a clue. There are 12 warnings that are listed in chapter 6. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, we have one of the longest lists of warnings in the Bible. And what is the focus of the warning? It's what we have been learning throughout the book of Jeremiah. 
God's judgment is coming upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem. You have heard me say week after week, we're living in an age of grace, but grace precedes judgment. And so the book of Jeremiah issues a series of warnings to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah has spoken of divorce in chapter 3, verses 1 through 25, disobedience in chapter 5, destruction in chapter 4, and now in chapter 6. As a matter of fact, we've already been warned, if you are righteous, flee Jerusalem immediately. That's what the message is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. This, by the way, is the last warning that's going to be given before judgment falls in chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. The destruction of Jerusalem will come as a result of God's wrath, but of consistent, unrepentant sin. God's just judgment for sin and rebellion and disobedience. And the wrath will come from the north, the Babylonian invasion of 606 BC. Remember the Assyrians have already been taken. The destruction of Jerusalem is about to take place. The Babylonians are congregating. They will destroy Judah's cities. The Lord's tools are a burning wind and an invading army. They will breach Jerusalem's walls, according to chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Why? Because the city is wicked through and through. Everyone will be affected, verses 11 through 17. From the least to the greatest, God will refuse the people's temple offerings in verses 18, 19. And as you walk through the passage all the way through verse 26, their sacrifices mean nothing to God. Why? Because their heart is not right. Because there's something desperately wrong on the inside. Jeremiah has spoken of his agitation over Israel's punishment in verse 10, his agony over Israel's future in chapter 4, verse 19. And now he speaks of a new assignment as a tester of metals, an assayer. Jeremiah will test Israel's spiritual condition and find out that there's nothing there. So it's a warning. It begins with the warning to the world in verses 1 through 20. And then it continues with the certainty of judgment. Look again in verse 1. It says, O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Set up a signal fire in Beth Hasarim or Hakerim. For disaster appears out of the north and a great destruction. Now, the warning begins in Jeremiah's own neighborhood. As a matter of fact, the territory of Jerusalem, when it was originally divvied up among the tribes, belonged to Benjamin. And we discover that in Joshua chapter 15, verse 8. But just like Washington, D.C. is literally located right 
on the border between Maryland and Virginia, Washington, D.C. is a city that doesn't belong to any individual state. It belongs to the entire United States of America. And Jerusalem became a city that didn't belong to Benjamin exclusively or Judah exclusively. It belonged to the whole country. And so the warning begins in his own neighborhood and it becomes a type and a picture of our circle of influence. Our influence begins with our wife, with our husband, with our children, with our immediate family and with our immediate neighborhood. And again, the city of Tekoa was home to the prophet Amos. The city was located a little more than 12 miles just to the north of Jerusalem. The city of Beth Hakarim, its location is unknown, but Bible scholars speculate that it must have been close enough so that you could see a signal fire. The name means the house of the vineyard, and it was mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 14. It was probably the mountain that was located between Bethlehem and Tekoa. And so the idea is that on that mountain, you could build a fire and thus send a message. And so that's part of the point. The warning is to flee. When you sound the trumpet and you raise the signal fire, these were military ways of communicating that an invading army was on the way. And if ever there was a time for you to drop what you're doing and think about what's happening and to flee, that's the point that Jeremiah is making. Jeremiah is basically making the point the army has already marched from the northern part of the country. It's 13 miles. And so he's saying, this is a warning that needs to be heeded right away. We need to act now. There's no time to delay. The message is urgent. The army is coming. They've conquered city after city. They're fast approaching Jerusalem. The people of Benjamin who live just north of Jerusalem were not to seek refuge in the city. Why? because the city was under judgment. The city was doomed. And so they're instructed to flee to the southern part of the country. And so in verse two, he says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. God's judgment will come in spite of the fact that Zion is like a daughter to the Lord. And so Jeremiah uses that metaphor and that illustration. The capital city is delicate and beautiful. So what do you suppose it means that God likens the city of Jerusalem to the daughter of Zion? Anyone who has a daughter, anyone who has a granddaughter, knows the heart-wrenching sorrow when they see their daughter or they see their granddaughter threatened or harmed. And so part of the picture of this metaphor is to communicate the heart of God even as judgment is coming. Sin cuts the heart of God. You see, in our culture, in our society, or sometimes even in our own hearts, we think that sin is something that can be redefined as a mistake or ignored. But the Bible says that it has to be dealt with. It has to be 
dealt with. And that's part of the point that is being made. Sinners are going to be judged by God. And so it cuts the heart of God and it has to be dealt with. And so the reality is that no matter how delicate and beautiful this is, sin must be judged. The sinner has to repent of his or her sin or face the judgment of God. And this message seems so antiquated. So yesterday, you're kidding me, right? People still talk like that? They talk about sin and they talk about the need to turn from sin and to do whatever it takes to avoid judgment? That's why this is a timeless message. That's part of the point. The city was delicate and beautiful, but it would wind up ruined. Why do you think that's important? Because that's what sin does. It ruins our lives. It harms us. It harms our marriages. It harms our family. It harms the community. And that's part of the point that, is, that, that Jeremiah is making. And, and remember, there is this consistent, unrepentant attitude that has been adopted by the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And so in verse 3, it says, The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. The point is that God is going to use foreign powers as the instrument of his judgment. And he likens them to foreign shepherds who bring their flocks to feed on a land that doesn't belong to them. Now, typically when we read the Bible and we read the image of a shepherd, we think of peace. We think of the New Testament. The Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd. In the Old Testament, we have the reoccurring metaphor. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those who are with young. But shepherds invading a particular place wasn't always peaceful, particularly to the ancient people of Israel. Because here the idea includes that the army is going to raise the city and destroy the city. And guess what? The only thing that's going to be around are empty hills of foreign shepherds grazing flocks on grass that doesn't belong to them. That's the point. The warning is unless there is a radical, fundamental change, things aren't going to go well. And so in verse 4, it says, this is the Lord speaking, prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. In other words, part of the point that Jeremiah is making is that the Lord himself is going to put a successful strategy of intervention in the mind of the enemies. It is the Lord himself who is going to put a strategy in the Babylonian generals in order for the enemies to be willing to attack at the most inconvenient time. And by the way, the word prepare here is the same word that was used in the Old Testament writings 
to prepare a sacrifice. Literally, the word prepare is the Hebrew word that means to sanctify or to set apart. We might think of it as the enemy offering a sacrifice to their pagan gods because in their mind, the war is a religious war. It is a holy war. They have it in their minds that they are to prepare for war and they're willing to, to forego the normal conventions and fight at the most inconvenient time. And that's part of the idea. Wars, by the way, were not typically fought at noon. You would think that that would be the best time to fight. Broad daylight, but guess what? In the heat of the day your energy gets drained rather quickly. And so they would plan wars early, early in the morning and try to fight until noon and then stop or plan something in the evening. At noon was typically the time when armies rested. And so part of the point that he's making is that these armies are so willing to fight that they're going to do it at the most inopportune time. And in verse 5 it says, Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. When Jeremiah says that, what he means, he's talking with the words of the enemy. The, the, The words of the enemy are, we can't even wait until morning. Let's attack them now. Let's go for it now. We can't even wait for the sun to come up. Let's do it now. And by the way, the word translated palaces can also mean citadels or outer fortifications of the city. So here we're left with the impression that they want to attack whatever outward defense strategies that they've come up with. It could mean the dwellings that are in the inner part of the city. So whether it's the outskirts or whether it's the inward parts of the city, the point is that they're ready to tear down the walls and they're ready to to make their invasion complete. And so in verse 6 it says, For thus has the Lord of hosts said, Cut down the trees, build a mound against Jerusalem. This is a city who will be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. And so... The warning begins. God's judgment must be executed against the city. Now, we're a people who typically look for reasons for judgment. Well, why is this going to happen? Why are they going to be judged? God gives the reason. One of many that he's already given in the book of Jeremiah. The city is full of oppression He says she is full of oppression. And the text leaves us with the impression that God himself is directing the enemy to attack the city. The city has to be punished for its sins of oppression. Oppressing the weak. Oppressing the sick. Oppressing the poor. Persecuting the righteous. Why will they cut down the trees? They're going to cut down the trees to provide towers for the archers who will shoot over the wall, mobile platforms for battering rams, wood for firewood. And in ancient times, when you would siege a city, particularly a city that was on a hill, you would fill in the gap and you would build a ramp in order to siege the city. And by the way, the Scythians didn't use siege equipment, but the Babylonians did. 
And so at this particular time, 600 BC, there is a sophisticated mechanism in order to capture the city. And so in verse 7, it says, as a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. What are some of the other reasons for judgment? The city pours out wickedness, violence, destruction. Typically, when it says, as a fountain wells up with water, fountains are metaphors typically for sustenance, for life, for refreshing. But here the city keeps bringing up wickedness instead of a fountain overflowing with joy and righteousness and goodness. It's a, it's a, a fountain of wickedness, which is always before the Lord. And the written text translates wells, but in the Hebrew, it's the word cistern. And the word cistern is a hole that's cut out and then plastered and filled with water. And so here the idea is that the city is full of oppression, wickedness, violence, and destruction. And by the way, the ex that expression of violence and plundering is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew. When it says... Violence and plundering are heard inside of her. It's a Hebrew expression that, that somewhat means in our own English language, <laughs> it's going to sound crazy to say this, but if, if you hear a person screaming, help, police, I'm being robbed. What's your impression? Is there something going on inside? If someone says help, Police, I'm being robbed. What's the invitation? It's come and help me. So when it says violence and plundering are heard in her, the implication is that what God is hearing is he's hearing the voices inside of the city. As he's hearing the voices inside of the city, come, help me. I'm hurt. I'm being taken advantage of. Every wickedness, every foul thing that you can, can imagine, God seems to hear it over and over again. And the expression in the, in the Hebrew language where it says, before me continually, in, in the language it says, before my face. The implication is, I see this and I see it at all times, that this is God's personal concern. And so it's bringing about this forceful image when we use that expression. When we use the expression, get out of my face, what do we mean by that? We want you to get out of our line of vision. We want you to get out of our way. In other words, this is something that's personal and intimate and you see it. And so here, when it says it's before my face continually... The idea is that this is something that God is witnessing on an ongoing basis. And why is that important to you and me? It's because even though you might ask the question, where are you, God? Don't you see what's happening here? Don't you hear what's happening here? Don't you care about what's happening here? The Lord's communication is, I see, I hear, I care. I see all the time. I hear all the time. I care all the time. 
And so the wickedness and the violence and the oppression comes bubbling up. And the Lord says, guess what? I've reached the grace capacity, if you will. And so in verse 8, it says, be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Now, here's the idea. The Lord issues yet another warning. And I'm going to give you some help with the text. The moment I say the word, the Lord issues a warning. That's your clue to, oh, this is one of the warning passages in the text. The Lord issues a warning. Warning. The city must repent or else God will turn away and make the land desolate. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. But I want to point something else out that might not be as straightforward as you're reading it. The moment that the Lord says this, the passage holds out hope that it's not too late to repent. The moment you hear the voice of the Lord say, I need you to go in a different direction. I don't know about you, but my life has been one series of warning after warning after warning. And by the way, there's never been a single circumstance ever in my life that the Lord didn't warn me about. And I would usually do one of two things with the warning. Obey the warning or disobey the warning. When I obeyed the warning, things went well for me. When I disobeyed the warning, things did not go well for me. So a warning will always have one of those two effects. It will avert disaster or it will promote disaster. So here, even though this passage says this, the moment that it says, please do this, that, you know what that means? The good news is it's not too late to repent. And that's something that we, we see throughout the book of Jeremiah. And we see if Israel and Judah in this case, and Jerusalem in this case, fails to repent, Look what the text says. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you. If Israel fails to repent, God will be alienated from his people. And that's what sin does. It alienates you from God. This is why the Bible's reoccurring message is, it isn't saying don't sin just because it's a bad idea. Remember, I want you to see the big picture. And the big picture is always, you exist to glorify God. You exist to have friendship and fellowship with God. You were meant to know him and to love him and to walk with him. And sin alienates you from God. So when, when the Lord uses the expression, lest my soul depart from you, lest the land be made desolate, the expression depart literally means in the original language to be pulled out or ripped out. And the implication is by force or violently. In the New Testament, we have a similar image that's given when Paul writes and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve 
God. Don't do that because what it does is it hinders your ability to exercise friendship and fellowship with God. And so here, when it says literally depart, it means pulled out or ripped out. And so the metaphor speaks of intimacy and proximity. Think about it just from a different perspective, just for a moment. The Lord is basically saying, I'm with you. I'm near you. I'm right next to you. I want you to sense my presence. I want you to sense my presence. And so what happens when you no longer sense his presence? The intimacy and proximity are gone. God's closeness to Israel disappears. And that's the devastating result of sin. That's why the Bible says sin separates us from God. Fellowship is ripped away. And even the opening statement in verse 8, be instructed in the Hebrew, mutsar. It means to be warned. It means to be disciplined. I think that probably the best translation for verse 8, where, where it says, be instructed, O Jerusalem, is accept your discipline. Did your mother or your father ever say, bend over and just accept what's coming. Now, the good thing about bending over and accepting the discipline, punishment and discipline is satisfied and you get to go on with your life. What happens if you squirm? What happens when you run? What happens when you turn around, put your hands on your hips and go, ha, 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 that didn't hurt. See, you're laughing because you know exactly what comes. Apparently, this discipline has been ineffective. So what do I have to do to get your attention? What will it take for you to understand that this particular way is not a good way. It's an unhealthy way. And so the refusal to repent, and this is the principle that you can underline and you should underline, the refusal to repent results in alienation first and devastation second. So when the, when the, when the Lord speaks to you and says, I need you to turn from your sin and I need you to, to embrace me, and you go, no. I, or even if in your own heart you go, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to quit that relationship. I'm not ready to, to, to turn away from that particular sin. I'm not ready to let that not be a part of my life. The refusal to repent will result in alienation and devastation. And so in verse 9, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer, put your hand back into the branches. The Lord issues another warning. Now remember what I've told you earlier. When I say, the Lord issues yet another warning, this is the next warning. The judgment will be thorough. The people will be judged time and time again. When you look at verse 9, when it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, remember that's an expression that speaks of God and his power. 
They shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer put your hand back into the branches. My family lived just on the outskirts of San Jose in a place called Coyote. And my, my grandmother and grandfather um, lived in Holl uh, Hollister and they lived in the northern part of, of California. They had orchards and, and vineyards and vine country. And when you go to glean a field, when a person gleans a field, they get the ripe fruit and the low-hanging fruit and the easy-to-reach fruit. So if you're walking through an orchard or if you're walking through a vineyard, you look at the fruit and which fruit do you grab first? The low-lying fruit, the fruit that is easy, the fruit that is accessible. In effect, God is commanding Jeremiah to search Israel just like he searched Jerusalem in chapter 5. Looking for a just man, the gleaner goes back and then gets the fruit that's least accessible. So when you're, when you're getting fruit out of an orchard, when you're getting fruit off of a vineyard, you get the stuff that's easy to get, and then you get the stuff that's more difficult to get. You look behind the branches. You look behind the leaves. You stick your hand in those areas that aren't obvious at the beginning. And so the Lord is basically saying, glean, glean, keep searching, strict conscientiousness. And so basically what he's basically saying to Jeremiah, I want your search for a righteous person not to just simply be limited to Jerusalem. I want you to go to the outskirts. I want you to go anywhere. I want you to go everywhere. I want you to keep asking. I want you to keep seeking. I want you to keep knocking. I want you to keep looking. Why? Because the judgment will be thorough. The, 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 the plucking of the fruit isn't just going to be taking place once or twice or three times or four times. Part of the point of the passage, I think, is that the judgment means that it's going to come and come again and come again. And in verse 10, it says, to whom shall I speak and give warning? What are we to think? Jeremiah is speaking now. The Lord has said, I want you to search. I want you to give the message. Jeremiah in verse 10 says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. The Lord issues yet another warning. What's the warning? Jeremiah says, who should I give this message to? Because frankly, nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. They're tired of this message of turn from your sin and turn to God and avoid judgment. Nobody wants to hear it. The people's hearts are hard. Their ears are closed. That's what it means, the uncircumcised ears. The people's hearts are hard. Their ears are closed to the message of judgment. I know what you're thinking. That sounds a lot like what's happening now. People's hearts are hard and their ears are closed to the message of judgment. And here's the warning that the Lord is giving. The people don't want to hear the word of God. The people consider the word of God offensive. You mean like, hate speech? Yes. 
if you say this is wrong, people get deeply offended by that. They get fundamentally disturbed by that. And so the Lord says, the warning, how do you know there's a problem? Their hearts are hard, their ears are closed, the people no longer hear the word of God, they consider the word of God offensive, the people find no pleasure in the word of God. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to know what God has to say. It's too hard. It's too heavy. Jeremiah wants to respond to the substance of God's command. Lord, who do you want me to talk to? Nobody wants to listen. Who can I speak to? Who will keep their ears open? Who will have an open heart? Who will be open to the word of God? Do you understand what the passage is saying? The passage is basically saying, for the people whose hearts are hard and their ears are closed and they no longer hear the word of God and they no longer consider the word of God offensive, or they, they find the word of God offensive and they take no pleasure in the word of God, they become ripe for judgment. What happens when your heart is soft and your ears are open? What happens when you say, I think I'm willing to listen to what God has to say? What happens the mo moment that you say, not only do I not find the word of God offensive, I find it filled with hope and filled with grace and filled with promises because there's a promise that's being extended that the darkness inside of me can become light and the guilt inside of me can become forgiveness. And that's one of the ways that you know that judgment is inevitable. Closed ears, closed heart, and a complete and utter repudiation of the word of God. You see, this is why we put such an emphasis on what God has to say in the Bible. In verse 11, it says, therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. The Lord issues another warning in verse 11. Here's what it's saying. The wrath of God and the judgment of God will fall on everyone. No one is exempted. The children won't be existed, but they're just kids. The youth won't be exempted. The husbands won't be exempted. The wives won't be exempted. The elderly won't be exempted. And so at the beginning of it, where it says, therefore, I'm full of the fury of the Lord. Jeremiah is letting loose with an emotional outburst. The prophet himself says, I can't hardly keep it in anymore. This outburst is an expression of fatigue and sorrow and weariness at holding back the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Because of Jeremiah's message, Jeremiah has come to that place where he's thinking, just get it over with. 
Just get it over with. If you're going to judge them, and if you're going to judge Judah, and if you're going to judge Jerusalem, just get, over, just get it over with. When he says, therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord, and I'm weary of holding it in, he's expressing something that sometimes you might express. I'm tired of telling people about Jesus. I'm tired about warning them that if they continue to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, I'm tired, I'm tired of telling them that the inevitable consequences of a life lived apart from God and a life lived apart from Christ, it's not going to work out. It's not going to be a good thing. It's going to be a terrible thing. And so that's the warning. Houses, property, wives will be plundered and taken by the conquerors. In verse 12, it says, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. This series of circumstances and warnings is the Lord specifically saying to these specific people, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose it all. It's all going to disappear. Now, is that the case every single moment of every single day? Not necessarily. But if you play around with sin, if you think that it's still going to end well, then you need to, again, just think carefully about consequences. And so that's the warning. And in, in verse 13, it says, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, Everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. The Lord anticipates the question, why? Why is the judgment coming? And again, he responds. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And remember what covetousness is. It's wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. It's greed. And so that's part of the point that he's talking about. The people have lived lives of greediness and selfishness and self-indulgence. The priests and the prophets are deceptive. So why is the judgment coming? When you live a life of greed and you live a life of selfishness and you live a life of self-indulgence, when the spiritual leadership themselves are deceptive... It's an invitation to judgment. And remember, grace precedes judgment. Can you imagine what would happen if from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone lived a life of selflessness and sacrifice? Remember what Jesus said. Take up your cross. Follow me. The more of heaven there is in our lives the less of earth we covet. Isn't that true? The more of heaven in our lives, the less of the earth we covet. There comes a point where you get to say like Paul the Apostle, give me Jesus. I purpose to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. No wonder Paul would write, We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus. And so the New Testament presents Jesus as the satisfying solution, not only of sin, 
but of, of acceptance by God and then reconciliation. And then I'm sure somebody must have been thinking, but aren't the Babylonians greedy? I mean, why would God use a greedy people to punish a greedy people? Question. Are the Babylonians the covenant people? Do they know God? Are they estranged from God? Is it possible that God could use an unbeliever to bring discipline into our lives? I think that is possible. Well, why would God use someone more wicked and, and evil than me to punish me? Ah, that's a good question, isn't it? Because God reserves the right to use whatever instrument that he wants to discipline us. But remember, there's a rhyme and a reason behind what God is doing. And it says in verse 14, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Shalom, Shalom. When there is no Shalom, the religious leaders living a life of deceit have substituted a message of peace for God's true message. And what's the true message, at least for Jeremiah? The true message is your sin matters. We have to expose the sin. We have to declare the reality that there's a true, honoring, righteous God who loves us and who is looking for a way to forgive us and reconcile him to, to, our, to himself. But the reality is we can't ignore the problem of sin because what it has done is that it has invited judgment. And so shalom means way more than just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness and wellness. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I'm not bound to win, but I'm bound to be true. I'm not bound to succeed, but I am bound to live up to the light that I have. I must stand with anybody that stands right. Stand with him while he's right and part with him when he's wrong. In Napoleon's expedition to Russia, a Russian peasant was captured and forced into Napoleon's service and they took him and they branded on his arm the letter N. And when he understood what it meant, he chopped off his arm that had been branded rather than serve his country's enemy. And sometimes we think that we have to choose between serving sin or not serving at all. Shouldn't the spiritual leaders be sensitive to God's will? You need to understand something. Jeremiah isn't simply attacking the spiritual leadership. What he is doing is he's attacking the abuse of spiritual leadership. That's, what, that's the problem. For centuries, leaders call for peace when the only solution is war. And for war when the only solution is peace. And so spiritual doctors don't simply treat the symptom, but they have to deal with the root cause of the problem. And so Jeremiah is trying to remind them that the root problem in this particular case is wickedness and rebellion and disobedience and estrangement from God. And that the people are going to have to turn back to the Lord. And so in verse 15, it says, where... 
Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those that fall. At the time I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Here's the prophet continues the reasons for judgment. The people were unashamed of their sinful behavior. They refused to blush. The idea being, how could you not know that that was wrong? <laughs> Aren't you even sorry? No. And that's the reasons that he's giving. The people were not only unashamed of their sinful, sinful behavior, they refused to blush. You know, there, there's a big difference between saying, what I've done is wrong and I know that it's wrong. Versus a person who said, don't you realize that what you've done is wrong? And they go, what? They're like clueless. And here the people fall, not just as individuals, but as a nation. And remember, the collapse takes place because of immorality. The reason given is a moral reason. And in verse 16, it says, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Now, verse 16 is a bittersweet verse. The bittersweetness is, the Lord is issuing another warning. Remember what I've already told you. When I say, the Lord is issuing another warning. <laughs> that means this is a warning passage. The nation is at a crossroads. What's, what's the sweetness? The prophet outlines the need. Seek the old proven paths of righteousness. Again, remember the warning. It's not too late. You can go back. We might even use the expression, give me that old time religion. The prophet outlines the promise. Okay, the need. Seek the old proven path of righteousness. Here's what the prophet is saying. God has spoken to us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Moses has written to us. God has given us a mechanism whereby we can understand his nature and his character. Seek the old proven paths of righteousness. Then the prophet outlines the promise. You will find rest for your souls. The need? Return. The promise, I'll forgive you. I'll provide rest. And then the prophet outlines their response. No, we refuse. We reject. Even after everything I told you about judgment, yeah. Even, if I to even when I included the promise that you're going to find rest for your souls, yeah. What about Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your, your elders and they will tell you. We still don't want to turn. We still don't want to change. We still don't want to obey. In verse 17, it says, also, I set watchmen 
over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we won't listen. The Lord issues another warning. The people refuse to hear the watchmen. In this case, the watchmen are the prophets who were sent by God to warn the people. Well, why didn't you let us know? How many different ways and how many different times and how many different methods do I have to exercise in order for you to get the message? Why is the judgment coming? Verse 18, therefore hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. The warning is extended to the nations. Goim, what is the warning? God is willing to judge his people. If God is willing to judge his people, how severe will the judgment be to those who are not his people? There's a New Testament parallel, isn't there? That judgment begins with the house of God. So, what's the warning supposed to be? If God is willing to discipline his own children for their refusal to submit and obey, what chance do the unbelievers have? The right answer is they have no chance apart from Christ. And so we're going to continue with the rest of the chapter next week. I want to just conclude with a thought before we go. Someone wrote seven things that you'll never regret. Showing kindness to an aged person. Destroying a letter written in anger. Offering an apology that saves a friendship. Stopping a scandal that was wrecking a reputation. Helping a young man find himself. Taking time to show your mother consideration. And the last on the list of some things that you will never regret, accepting the judgment of God on any question. What does the Lord have to say? What does the Lord want? What is the Lord willing to do? The warnings will continue throughout the chapter. But remember what the warnings were always intended to do. Provide security and provide protection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes <laughs> we get so inundated with warnings that they become almost like empty words. And we're always, almost always asked to choose between something that is awful and something that is, is really awful. But Lord, we know that in the person of Jesus Christ, we never have to choose between bad and bitter. We never have to choose between worse and wicked. That Lord, we get to choose life and love and hope and redemption. Lord, over and over again, the red flag goes up. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would desire fullness instead of emptiness. That we would desire real peace 
peace with you and peace that causes us to enter into real friendship and real fellowship with you and real love through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that the absence of a person's unwillingness to hear, unwillingness to feel, unwilling to listen, unwilling to even consider the fact that God's word might be true, that they, they literally find the Bible offensive. Lord, we know that grace precedes judgment, but for the person who rejects you and rejects what you have to say, that judgment isn't very far away at all. Again, Lord, we thank you that we've been judged on the cross of Calvary, that Jesus' death on the cross is the satisfying solution to the problem of our sin. And so again, Father, we pray that we would be <laughs> obedient, but Lord, also that we would be faithful to the promises of God, that if we turn from our sin, that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just and forgiving us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And so again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love and how grace precedes judgment and that this is a day of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.